Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our pool campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. Hey, it's so good to be in the house, isn't it, this morning? No, clearly not. I'm happy to be here. It's so good to be here today. Uh, We've got some issues with lights, hence why it's a bit different this morning to usual. Um, It was trying to worship with us. These lights were trying to flash themselves and uh, it is what it is. Um, It's a big week in the life of Britain. We've got another election happening on Thursday. Wow, I'm surprised by how much excitement is in the house for that. I mean, I'm getting weary. Is anyone else weary of all the elections and the politics right now? We're just waiting for somebody, aren't we, to come along who just says the truth. Oh man, how I long for that. Well, today, good news. We are looking at the theme, Jesus for President. Uh, I don't know about you, but I would love Jesus to be president. Now, I know in the UK, we're a bit different to America. We don't have presidency. We have political parties and political leaders. Uh, but I just think this president, this, this role that is one of uh, leadership over a republic state, I would just love Jesus to be the president of the United Kingdom. Right now, we are more disunited than we've ever been. So just to have Jesus over all of that would be such, it's just amazing, wouldn't it? Well, I was thinking about this idea. I was just thinking like, Well, what would it be like if Jesus was president? Now, what I do want to say is on Thursday, we have an important decision to make. Um, And it's easy sometimes to think that it's pointless voting and it's pointless really doing anything. Well, I really want to encourage you that on the basis of what I see in Scripture, that we are to take an interest in these things, we should be prayerfully considering who we're voting for. And more than that, we should be engaging our brain, our God-given mind, to really process the manifestos that the parties have released to help us consider who is going to lead us back onto a godly agenda. Now, it's not necessarily the case that they will do that, but ultimately, according to your conscience, you can go to bed at night thinking that I made a wise, discerned decision. Uh, And so at the back end of this week, if you're on the Sunny Hill database, you will have seen that um, we sent out a link to the Christian Institute website. Christian Institute is a phenomenal ministry and charity that have done all the hard work for you. So you don't, I remember reading one manifesto about four years ago, and literally it took me about four and a half hours, and it was hard work. I took my highlight and a pen because I felt like I should and I was going to do all four and then I thought no I'm not doing all four I'm just going to do one because it took so long but somebody at the Christian Institute has gone through all the political party manifestos and have highlighted and just made us aware of what things uh, relate to us as Christians what things kind of matter to us about life um, about identity about all those things and I just really encourage you to go on the Christian Institute website you can even download the PDF so you can do it when you're journeying to work on the train or something and then make a decision Now, I do want to say this because I don't want to stand here and tell you who you should vote for. But I do want to say this is that like often we vote according to financial upsides. So we look for the political party that is going to make us the wealthiest, right? We look at parties that are going to enforce that benefit or that tax break that is going to help our personal situation. And whilst I understand the thinking behind that, actually there's much bigger things at stake than just financial benefits, okay? There are godly values, Historically, what we would have called British values, although not so much anymore. Godly values that matter, that necessarily don't speak into your financial uh, prosperity, but rather speaking on how do we as a nation move closer to the heart of God. I believe this, that when a nation is built on the word of God and follows the instructions of God's word, then God brings blessing and prosperity to that nation. David says in Psalm 33, the nation is blessed that's Lord is God. That when a nation turns its heart towards the one Lord, the one God, there is a blessing in store. 
And I think some of the challenges we're facing in the United Kingdom or in the disunited kingdom right now is because we have deviated and we have moved further and further away from God. And what we're doing is we're, we're championing and celebrating uh, deception and deceit and lies and we're beginning to despise the truth, okay? And we see that because as soon as you speak truth into a situation, people are getting offended, because they've been listening to lies for so long. Now, it sounds really heavy and political, but I just want to put it on your radar that it's really important for us as the Church of Jesus Christ to take a vested interest in these things and really research who we should be voting for. Amen? Amen. Okay, Jesus for president. Jesus would have been a great presidential candidate. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Let me show you some things that I've found in the New Testament. He could draw large crowds. You know, when he spoke, people rallied around to hear because in some sections of the New Testament, we read that he spoke as one who had authority. Like not just authority of understanding, but authority to change circumstances. So when he spoke, crowds folded in from miles around to hear him speak. We also read that he was a friend of publicans and sinners. In other words, those who are maybe more broken in society, maybe those who are more strained society, Jesus was accessible to them, Okay. We also read that he stood up for the poor and the old. Often those marginalized and forgotten by politics, Jesus stood up for them. We also read that he prized the young, the rich, and the powerful. The likes of uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the rich young ruler, Jesus had a heart for them. We also read that he was ridiculously honest. That's probably an oxymoron, isn't it? You can't be ridiculously honest. But he was so honest and he could not be bought. Like no one could have bought his candidacy. We know that after he got baptized, um, Satan uh, in the wilderness, as the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, Satan tried all he could to buy Jesus because Satan knew that if Jesus was successful in his mission, then it would be the end of him. And so Satan tries to buy Jesus' attention, but he could not be bought. We also read that Jesus was sincere, unselfish, and fair. Hopefully you're beginning to see that Jesus would be a great candidate. He loved widows and children, again those marginalized and sometimes despised in uh, Palestine 2,000 years ago. We also read that he championed the underdog. So when a leper walked into a room or a leper came into a space, when everyone else was moving away, Jesus went and championed them and he healed them. We also read that he stood up to bullies. I like people who stand up to bullies, do you? Come on, I love it when people stand up to bullies. John 8, we read that this woman caught in adultery, the religious leaders come and throw her at Jesus' feet, but Jesus, rather than throwing judgment on her, actually stands with her and stands up against her accusers. We also read that he was an independent thinker. Okay, he didn't just believe and speak what everybody wanted him to speak. He spoke what he needed to speak, which was the word of God. And at times, that meant that the crowds left him, but nonetheless, he spoke it and he thought it. We also read that he stood by his convictions. So when he goes into the temple in John 2 and he sees that there's money changers and they are using the temple courts in a wrong way that was restricting people from encountering God, Jesus had conviction about it. And who knows what he did? He made a whip and he went in and he drove them out. I like that picture of Jesus. Anyone else? I think sometimes we just think about Jesus who like pats kids on the head and carries lambs around Israel. Like this Jesus made a whip and he went in and he drove his convictions through the temple courts. I love that. We also read that he did not tell the religious party line. Oh, you know, the people that really struggled with Jesus the most was the religious people. 
And maybe if you don't know Jesus this morning, you'd be thinking, well, surely you're religious, right? Surely we're religious. Well, I would say, no, we're not religious. Religious is about legalism. It's about ritualistic routines. It's less heart and it's more process. And religious leaders back in Jesus' day, they had their processes and their structures. All the I's dotted and the T's crossed and Jesus came and he was like a spanner in the works, right? He did not play ball with the religious leaders. And so you can see that in all these cases, he was a great candidate. And this one as well. He had no skeletons in his closet. Jesus was perfect. Like, perfect. It's even hard to get her human mind around that. He was without sin. He was tempted like us, but he resisted temptation. Whereas often, we give in to temptation. And so he didn't have a little book, book, book? A little book, black book lying around where a private detective could find it and go, oh, he's had an inappropriate relationship here. He put this tweet out about 20 years ago. You know, he spoke to this woman at the well, all this kind of stuff. And you know, He didn't leave any trails that would have derailed his candidacy as president. He would be phenomenal. And it's interesting because actually, we read in Isaiah almost like a manifesto of Jesus who was to come. And uh, really, this is going to bring us into a Christmas passage now, so I can talk about this and still keep it festive, so I can do festive politics. Who's excited about that? Okay, so open your Bibles to Isaiah 8. It's really important that we understand the context. King Ahaz is ruling over Judah. Ahaz is a terrible king. Everyone say, terrible king. He didn't have a long reign, but he had a destructive reign. He was selfish. He was paganistic in his mindset. He didn't care about the people one iota. All he cared about was his position and his authority and his kingship. And so Ahaz made an ungodly alliance. He was the king of southern, um, uh, the southern tribe, Judah. He made an ungodly alliance with the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians was an ungodly paganistic empire that he formed an alliance with because he was scared of them, basically. Do you know that often people make an alliance with people they're scared of? Because often they think if I'm friends with them or if I can some way make a, a, a contract or a covenant with them, then it's going to safeguard and protect me. But it's actually one of the most foolish things you can do. And Hay has found that out. He makes this ungodly alliance that says, listen, invade northern Israel, which was Israel, but don't come into Judah. And so gives them money, gives them a measure of freedom and all this sort of stuff. But before long, the tables turn and it's totally backfired. Now Assyria have marched through Israel and now they're coming straight for Judah. And Ahaz is petrified. But not just Ahaz, the people are too. They are petrified. They are living in fear because they are about to have imminent uh, break through the borders and people are going to be taken captive. And it, it's, it's a scary season they're in. And Isaiah speaks right into this. And normally we jump straight into Isaiah 9, but I want us to understand Isaiah 9 through the preceding verses in chapter 8. Isaiah says this in verse 20. He says, look to God's instructions and teachings. Now, just think about that for a moment. Society was so dark and gloomy and hopeless. Why? Because Ahad, the leader of, Ahaz, the leader of Judah had caused them to move away from the heart of God and the worship of God. And Isaiah speaks up, look to God's instructions and teachings. Goes on. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. As soon as you move away from the truth, you become a captive. You know, elsewhere in the scriptures, it says it's the truth that sets us free. 
Truth promotes freedom. Deceitfulness promotes captivity. And Isaiah is speaking into this predicament. He says, people who contradict his word are completely in the dark. Verse 21. They will go from one place to another, weary and hungry. In other words, they're hungering for something and they're just tired of living. Like, this is crazy because I think this so relates to the feeling in the United Kingdom right now. People are hungry for something new. People are hungry for change. People are weary of what they've seen. People are tired of what has been. There's a weariness, there's a tiredness, and there's a hunger for something more. And Isaiah continues, and because they are hungry, they will rage. And we're seeing this, aren't we? Protests all over the world. You're seeing this, right? They will rage and curse their king and their God. Can't believe Boris has done this. Or actually, more aptly, I can't believe David Cameron called this referendum in the first place. And then we make a decision, which is fair enough because we're a democratic republic. But then it seems like it's just an impossible decision. Now, we don't know our way out. And then you get like the Joe Swinson of leaders coming as the Lib Dem leader saying, listen, if you put us into power, we won't Brexit, which is just anti-democracy. So now all of a sudden, we're in nowhere. We don't have a clue what we're doing. We're in darkness, we're in gloom, and we're tired. We're just tired. And so we're cursing our leaders at times, and maybe for the unbelievers, they're cursing God. If there was a God, this would never happen. We continue to read, they will look up up to heaven and down at the earth, but wherever they look, there will be trouble and anguish and dark despair. They will be thrown out into the darkness. Merry Christmas, Sunny Hill. Aren't you pleased you came to church this morning? I just wanted to encourage you. I know Dave and Caroline have been, Caroline's been getting over stuff and, you know, I'm you pleased you came this morning. I need to be encouraged in that way. Just thank you for coming. We'll see you next week. And now, fortunately, the story and the prophetic word doesn't end there. But Isaiah is aptly speaking the context and the feelings of what Israel, Judah, are feeling at this moment. And I think it relates to us. But then he continues, and this is normally where we pick it up. Nevertheless, Isaiah 9 verse 1, nevertheless, so when you read a word like that, you know it, it is contextually to the thing that just came before. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. So that confusion you're feeling, that sense of apathy you're feeling, that sense of weariness and hunger and crappiness you're feeling, it will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. Naphtali and Zebulun. So I told you about the southern kingdom, Judah, the northern kingdom, Israel. Naphtali and Zebulun was a district in the top part of the northern uh, place. So it was in Israel. And it had been totally influenced by pagan practices. And the Assyrians had come in and just caused riot there. But Isaiah says this. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee which is that area which we know in the New Testament, Naphtali and Zebulun, when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now just think for a moment. When Jesus came, most of his ministry operated in the area of Galilee. The land that in the Old Testament we refer to as Naphtali and Zebulun. So Isaiah is saying, listen, Naphtali and Zebulun struggling. They are humbled right now. They are defeated, but a day is coming when that is going to shift and that's going to change and there's going to be glory in Galilee. It's amazing. Verse 2 continues. 
This is almost like the manifesto now for this coming Messiah. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Who wants a light to shine in the UK right now? I know I do. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. In other words, there's that God, you're going to come and, and you're going to extend the parameters of Israel. Right now, our concern is that our boundaries are coming in. But actually, a day's coming when our boundaries are going to push out further and wider. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. Bearing in mind, they're in an apathetic, weary place. But he's saying one day people are going to rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoicing at the harvest. And like warriors dividing the plunder. Again, right now we're feeling lack, we're feeling hardship, we're feeling challenge. But a day's coming when we're going to be rejoicing like there's more, so much bountiful harvest for us to enjoy. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. Wow. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. Remember the context, this heavy-handed evil regime, the Assyrian Empire, breaking through the thresholds of Israel. But Isaiah is saying, a day will come when you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders, and you will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. He says, the boots of the warriors and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. In other words, like your boots and your outfits, or not outfits, they're not called outfits in the war, are they? That sounds a bit different. <laughs> Go and put on my war outfit. Um, what's it called? Uniform, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Judah calls it outfits, I sort of thinking. Uh, has anyone seen my outfit? No, the, you know, the, the green one for the forest. No. I saw your sand outfit, but I haven't seen your grass outfit. That actually the uniforms, bloodstained by war, will no longer be necessary will no longer be needed. They will be fuel for the fire. Is everyone still tracking with me? Like I need you to understand the backstory of the context because what follows is incredible. Because Isaiah is speaking into a moment seven to 800 years before Jesus comes and he's saying, listen, one's coming and they're going to break the oppressor's rod. They're going to extend the parameters of Israel. You're going to rejoice, you're going to eat and you're going to celebrate the conclusion of all of these wars. Amazing. But then we read this. Verse 6. For a child is born to us. A child? Like just a few verses ago, you were saying how they were going to break the oppressor's rod. Like, sounds like a champion of the military to me. Saying how you're going to extend the parameters and the boundaries of Israel. It sounds like a war champion to me, but a child. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Israel is waiting for breakthrough. Judah's waiting for breakthrough. And Isaiah prophesies coming. There's one. There's one. There's a child that's coming. There's a son that's coming. There's a child, there's a son that's coming. And the reason this is great news for us 
is because Isaiah is speaking into a moment in Judah's history where they're going to have to wait 800 years for the answer. We read the exact same passage this morning and we go, the answer came 2,000 years ago. So where they were looking forward and were hope-filled, we look backwards and we should be even more hope-filled because this deliverer, this one who's going to break the oppressor's rod, has already come. We can get excited about that. He's already come. Jesus. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We normally sing carols, which I'm not a huge fan of, but really they're loaded with huge truth that really shifted the dynamic of the universe 2,000 years ago on the cross. And Isaiah is saying, one's coming, and the government is going to rest on his shoulders. The government is going to rest on his shoulders. Not Boris Johnson's, not Trump's, not Putin's, Jesus's. The government's going to rest on his shoulders. And I find it interesting because if we just jump back a minute in verse 4, it says he will lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. Maybe some of you this morning are like, oh gosh, so much confusion. Oh my God, I don't know who to vote for. Or maybe anything else for that matter. Any other trauma or challenge you're facing. Let me tell you this, that when Jesus came, he put the government on his shoulders. That weight and that burden that you could barely carry, Jesus took. It's so good. And it's funny because as I was speaking, he says like the entirety of this government, it's not like it's a part share. It's not like he's going to share a little bit with Westminster or the White House. It's all of it. You know, generally in the West, we champion democracy. Democracy is the rule of people. In other words, England is like one big Baptist church, basically. We vote for everything. Do we want Brexit? Yes. Do we want two sugars in our tea? Yes, please. We just vote. We vote. We vote for stuff. And it's the right kind of way because really none of us trust people. We don't believe that there's one person good enough to rule the nation independently. So all of us want to say. All of us want to speak into it, right? I mean, Winston Churchill even said this. Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. <laughs> like, I'm not anti-democracy. I am pro-democracy because, like you, I don't trust people to have power in their own right. I think democracy is a good thing. But really, it's a rubbish form of government because ultimately, it's like the blind leading the blind. Like, how do we know what's good for us in our future? But yet, like, you know, I can barely raise three kids at home. But now I've got the power to vote for something, some national legislation. Like, what is going on here? Now, I believe in democracy, but the truth is there is a better way. And it's actually one ruler, one king, one lord over everything. I think that's why sometimes people who get saved don't always go the whole journey with Jesus because they realize that he has to become king of everything, not just of some of the things, right? We like to live our lives democratically. It's a good thought, Jesus, but I'm going to do this. I mean, I read that in the Word, but actually I've got a better idea. Like, it's cool and stuff, but we voted about it. We thought, no, we're not going to do that today. Like Isaiah is saying, no, the government is on his shoulders. So you can understand why 2,000 years ago, Jesus was misunderstood in multiple places and, and why people read and heard this prophetic word and thought that Jesus was going to come as some valiant war hero. And we see that like right from the outset of Jesus' life, Herod is insecure about this king that's coming. And so he's being worried about being unseated by one to be king. So he hears of the Magi coming, 
what we typically call the three kings, coming to visit this one who's been born king of the Jews. And Herod wants to meet with them. And what he says is, when you find him, tell me where he is because I really want to worship him. But actually what he really means is, tell me where he is because I want to kill him. Because Herod had heard the prophetic words about this idea of the oppressor's rod being broken. Had heard that there's one that's coming that's going to change everything. And so Herod then committed whole genocide across infants, across all of the area, just because he wanted Jesus taken out before he had chance to rise to this position. We also read, uh, like I referred to earlier, when Satan tempts Jesus, he tempts him with political power. All the kingdoms of the world. Satan knows that ultimately every kingdom is going to come under the authority of Christ eventually. And so Satan offers him a fast track to that outcome. He says, listen, there's a route to you getting this without you having to go to the cross. So if you bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus resists that political temptation. We also read that at the peak of his popularity, like Jesus was so popular, people loved what he said, people loved how he said it. Adoring people tried to forcibly crown him king. Like, you must be the king we're waiting for. Let's make him king now. We're fed up of the Roman Empire. We're fed up of the Roman governing authorities. Let's make Jesus king now. But we read in John 6.15 that when Jesus heard this, he slipped away because he did not want to be crowned king in this way. And at the end, Pilate judged him on charges of seeking political power, which was not true at all. But do you remember the sign that was put on the head of the cross? What did it say? King of the Jews. Jesus needed to be punished for something and Pilate was struggling to find a reason to crucify him. And so he does so on the basis of you profess to be king of the Jews. You're trying to overturn the Roman Empire. So we can see that there was lots of confusion 2,000 years ago when Jesus, this child, eventually came to the point that we see all of these political threads getting all tangled up in Jesus' life. But then Jesus makes this amazing confession in John 18. He says this, My kingdom is not of this world. It's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. So on the one hand, in Isaiah 9, there's this prophetic word. The government rests on his shoulders, the kingdom. Government basically means dominion. And it means rule and it means reign. Dominion rests on his shoulders. But it doesn't always feel like that. Why? Because his kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. It's a kingdom from another place. It's a whole different ballgame. You see, the kingdom of this world and the kingdoms of this world seek to bring reform and change from the top down. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing is one that brings transformation from the ground roots up. The earthly kingdoms enforce their kingdom with power, ego, and control. But the other kingdom is not one that is enforced. It's one that is received with humility, grace, and love. You see, the, the, the earthly the kingdom is all about how can we make our nation get as much as we can? How can we keep gaining and increasing our share, our hoard of wealth? This other kingdom is how can we keep giving 
How can we keep serving? This kingdom is, how can we just keep taking more land and pushing more minority groups into submission? This one is, is how, how do we keep expanding the world of people? The kingdoms are in sharp contrast to one another. And the government and dominion of this kingdom rests on the shoulders of Jesus. So where is the kingdom? We see this question asked. Once, I'm being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. So like, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. I like that. When I read stuff like that, it just sounds so kind of flippant. Ah, there it is, over there. There's the kingdom. Just over there. Basically, upturn, turn left. There's the kingdom. No, no, no. Oh, there it is. There's the kingdom, over there. Jesus says, because the kingdom of God is within you. So all of a sudden, this government that rests on the shoulders of Jesus, I do believe one day will, all kingdoms will come under the submission of Christ. I do believe that. But in this day, in this season, what we're talking about is not his, who is president of America or who is prime minister of the UK. The question is this. Who's the president of your heart? Who's your leader? Who's your captain? Who's your king? Because actually it's not so much about who are we voting for on Thursday. A more important question is, who did you vote for this morning? Who are you going to vote for tomorrow when you get out of bed? Are you going to vote for yourself as supreme leader? Like the Kim Jong-un of your world? Or are you going to say, no, Jesus is president of my life. Jesus is the leader of my heart. It's his government. It's his kingdom that will expand in my world. And we bring reform and transformation to the world outside of us because we allow the kingdom of God to get a hold of us on the inside. Of course, that affects. And so Jesus says, but it's not like a physical, tangible place. Like, here's the postcode of the kingdom of God. It's basically the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. I want to get Ben to come up and play keys so I can definitely conclude this message and not continue longer than I should. As Ben plays, it just helps me just zone down and just land this plane. But it's an interesting thing. Because what we read in Isaiah 9... He helps us a great deal. He actually tells us four names that define this president or this leader that's coming. The first name is this. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Like sometimes we... We miss some power in these words because we're limited by our English language. But in Hebrew, wonderful doesn't mean like semi-good. And it doesn't mean pretty good. It doesn't mean like I had a wonderful roast dinner today or, you know, Liverpool played wonderful yesterday, right? Bournemouth played not so wonderful yesterday. It's like this incomprehensible, mind-bogglingly good counsellor. Like... So on the one hand, Isaiah is saying the government rests on his shoulders. So it is autocratic or theocratic, if you like. It's not like he shares his kingdom with anybody. But yet in the same breath, he's the wonderful counsellor. What does counsellor mean? It means like he advises, he guides, he leads. 
Dan, come here. Let me show you this way. Dan gets saved and the kingdom of God is born on the inside of him, okay? And actually it relates to that thing I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, about the three parts of a human being, the physical being, the soul, and the spirit. When Dan gives his life to Christ, his spirit comes alive inside and it begins to minister to his soul. What's his soul? It's his mindset, it's his feelings, it's emotions, it's his personality. And all of a sudden the spirit of God that is born on the inside begins to extend the kingdom inside of him starts to highlight dysfunctions and patterns of thinking and sinful habits that aren't glorifying to him and begins to burn on his conscience and brings conviction to the point where he's not feeling judged, he's feeling like, I don't need to leave this way anymore. Now the wonderful counsellor that is on the inside of Daniel begins to say, listen man, let's go this way. Let's go this way. It's not like Vladimir Putin, like, let's go this way. (laughs) Or Kim Jong-un, like a button. Let's go this way. He's a wonderful counsellor. He's so good. Dan, let's go this way. This way there's blessing. This way there's life. There's future. There's plans. There's purposes for your life. Let's go this way. It isn't like this. Let's go this way. (laughs) Not coerced or manipulated. It is a wonderful counsellor. You can't can't comprehend it. He's not semi-good. He's totally good. Like This is like a leader you've never seen in your life. Because there's no ill motive in him. There is no sin in him. There is no flawed pattern of thinking in him. There is no insecurity in him. It's Jesus and he's like, Dan, come this way. Like, I I see you've been doing this stuff. It's killing you on the inside. It's limiting you. It's restricting you. The kingdom of God is, is struggling to find life as you do these things. But let's go this way. Wonderful counselor. But then Isaiah gives us another name for this coming king says he's mighty God make no mistake about this Jesus he's the Jesus who embraces kids and champions the cause of the widow but he's also the Jesus that will stand against nonsense he's a Jesus that brings a righteous anger to the things that hurt the heart of God he's a Jesus that hates sin with a passion The sin in your life, Jesus hates it. He hates it. He loves you, but he hates that. Why? Because he knows that that's what's killing you. And so the wonderful counselor comes and says, come on, let's go this way. And mighty God stands behind you like a roaring fire, like a roaring lion. God in you is always the majority, regardless of the giant and mountains that stand before you, the challenges, circumstances, sicknesses that stand firm. Like there is a mighty God that is in your corner. A mighty God. So he's a wonderful counsellor, come. And he's a mighty God. You touch this boy. (laughs) You touch this boy. We also read another name. He's the everlasting father. Right now, Isaiah is saying this this one that's coming is God. (laughs) He has his origin in eternity. He may be born one day, but he's from everlasting to everlasting. He's without beginning. He was there at the beginning. He's the everlasting, but he's also the father. He's the dad you never had. He's the dad you always wanted. You know, and if this was Caleb, I'd like, oh, let's do it anyways. (laughs) And I'm going to hernia just for this illustration, right? Just for you. That's how much I love you guys. Okay. Come on, son. Yay, dad, yay. 
I'm making God look pretty unimpressive now, aren't I? Yeah, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, Dan, what have you been eating this week, Dan? <laughs> Let's do this instead. That's my boy. Now, I'm not trying to, like, make God almighty. I'm trying to help you understand that when Isaiah saw a revelation of the one to come, there was all of these facets to his character that he was trying to articulate for the people who would be looking. Yeah, he's the wonderful counselor, but he's the mighty God, but he's the everlasting father. And then he says, Prince of Peace. I think it's an interesting thing. Peace isn't the absence of war. Phil spoke about the shalom of God a little while ago. Is it there? If not, no worries. There was a sword somewhere, but instead I'll use a chair. Because <laughs> it's more like WWF, this illustration. The pre... The Prince of Peace isn't about the eradication of war. It's about the presence of God in conflict. It's different. And like, I did have a sword, but it's gone now. It's probably one of the kids have taken it. But this Prince of Peace. <laughs> no, I'm going this way. Don't worry. You're not, you're not getting it. Like, come on, you go for him. Because I'm the Prince of Peace. So, so even internally with the wrestles and the struggles that you feel God isn't absent it doesn't matter if you can see him working it doesn't matter if you can feel him working his kingdom's on the inside of you right it's not of this world so he's your wonderful counsellor come he's your mighty God he's your everlasting father he's your prince of peace right so it plays out you can sit down give him a huge round of applause The reason I say this is just that, as I says, his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The zeal of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. And one day, and I'm going to read it to you, one day I believe every kingdom will come into submission under the name of Jesus Christ. And actually, Paul says this in Philippians 3. This won't be on the screen. He says this, For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite, and they brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. In verse 20, he says, but we, we are citizens of where? Heaven. We are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our saviour and he will take our mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. So there's a sense that there's a now and a not yet. But like sometimes it annoys me when preachers just talk about eternity like Jesus is a get out of jail free card because actually he wants to change your world now. He wants to change your life now. He wants you to live in the fullness of the kingdom now. Not when he returns, not the second coming, but now. And so Paul encourages us, listen, we live as citizens of another place. So we may be living in chaos and carnage and darkness and brokenness but it doesn't phase us because we're citizens of heaven 
our citizenship has fundamentally changed and shifted. We think things in a new way. We do things in a different way because we are influenced by the values of heaven, not the values of earth. And so for sure, for sure we vote on Thursday and we do so prayerfully and with wisdom. But let me tell you this, it changes nothing for us, the outcome. If Boris gets in, we're still the church. If Jeremy Corbyn gets in, we're still the church. Joe Swinson gets in, we're still the church. If Nigel Farage gets in, <laughs> we're still the church. Nothing changes for us. We are not tossed around because of political outcomes. The people of God go from strength to strength. Why? Because we are citizens from another place. We find our security, our identity and purpose in something far more greater than the political climate of the United Kingdom. Amen? Regarding, yeah, give the Lord a round of applause. Regardless of whether Brexit happens or not, I'd like to say, let's make church great again. <laughs> a church that builds bridges and not walls. <laughs> let's make church great. We're going to start doing Sunny Hill merch. Red caps, let's make Sunny Hill great again. Let's make church great again. <laughs> like Richard, give me a cat, mate. Give me a cat, man. There we go. There we go. Let's make church great again. <laughs> Listen, I, I really am not pushing a political agenda outside of the fact I am. I'm pushing the kingdom's agenda, which is this. Nothing changes for us, but we're still going to pray for the parties. We're still going to pray for our government. We're still going to pray for our rulers and our leaders because that's the right godly thing to do. We're going to be praying that we move to godly values. But in the meantime, until Jesus returns, we become carriers of the kingdom of God and we enforce his rule and reign in our circumstances, in our challenges, in our good times, in our bad times. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's a light for our feet. I thank you that it's a lamp for our path. I pray, God, that we would just know the supernatural blessing of God, Lord, as we vote on Thursday, Lord. We pray that there would be a shift in politics, Lord God. I pray, Father, that there would be a realization of the way that we're going is destructive, Lord, and that, God, we would turn from that path, Lord, and that we would uh, turn back to you, Lord, that we would begin to see godly values, biblical values, begun to be rooted back in this nation, Lord, and that we would see blessing and prosperity in this land, Lord God, that we would become the most generous nation in the world, Lord. Father, I just pray, God, that you would help us, God, to have your heart for Thursday. But Lord, even beyond that, Lord, I pray that when we wake up tomorrow, we will determine who we're going to vote for first thing. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Bless you guys.